Good morning. Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Pittsburgh. We're delighted to have you with us this morning for worship. Please take a minute to sign the pew pads at the end of the pews so that we can greet one another by name at the end of the service. If you wish to talk to a Stephen minister confidentially, the Stephen minister on duty today is Alice O'Dwyer, and she's available in the narthex wearing a special name tag. Take a look at the bulletin for any upcoming announcements or events, and please join us for refreshments at Fellowship Hall at the end of worship. Bruce, can you start us out? Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but one who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil mind gives life to the flesh, but passion makes the bones rot. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. Those with good sense are slow to anger, and it is their glory to overlook an offense. Do not testify against your neighbor without cause, or use your lips to deceive. Do not say, I'll do to others as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they have done. If your enemies are hungry, give them food to eat. And if they are thirsty, give them water to drink. 
Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice. Let us worship God. Please join me in prayer. Wondrous and gracious God, we wait and hope. We are waiting to hear your call to a new and fresh way of living. We are waiting for assurance and peace for our lives feel disrupted and whipsawed. We are waiting to experience your love anew. Call us, challenge us, and fill us with strength and courage by your Spirit that our attitudes, our behaviors, and our values 
might not only be pleasing in your sight, but might reflect the life and hope of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God did make each one of us, all creatures, great and small. And God gifted us with so much, including the capacity to forgive, that is accepting the forgiveness of Christ and then passing it on, not just to ourselves, but to a world that needs to know of it. And so with the confidence of the children of God, let us confess our prayers using this printed prayer. Lord, Lord, we we have have been been false to one one another another, and have have not not spoken spoken truthfully truthfully nor nor lovingly. We We use words that tear down relationships and make fun of others. Sometimes we have said cruel things, comforting and fooling ourselves into thinking, we said it for their own good. We sin in our anger. We hoard things out of fear of the future, and we worship things rather than you. Forgive us, God. Help us use our language to build up instead of tear down. Allow our words to show kindness and graciousness to others. Please help us to live in love as Christ loved us. Amen. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, for the righteous and the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Amen. Please be seated, friends. Our poetic word for today is taken from the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. This will sound very familiar to many of you who might be familiar of the works of Pete Seeger. It is the original text taken from the prophet Kohelet of Ecclesiastes, and I invite you to hear God's word to each one of us. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain have their workers from their toil? I've seen the busyness that God has given everyone to be busy with, God has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into our minds, yet we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. 
I know that there is nothing better for us than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all our toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done all this so that all should stand in awe before the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite the children to join me up here on the stairs. I don't know if you all know what this is. Yeah, that's what I tried to do. I, I thought maybe I needed to take these things and hook them up to something. But I guess that wasn't what I was supposed to do. But let me tell you why I got these. These, these were priced right. I got both of these for, you know how much? 25 cents. Yeah, these were purchased. I, I have learned that a bargain is something I do not need at a price I cannot resist. And these were available at the penny pincher sale. 25 cents. Somebody put them on my desk. And I stood there and I couldn't figure out what to do with them. You know what to do? You want to come show me? That's exactly right. You want to try that? Oh, yeah. I discovered that if I did that around the office, I can really annoy people. Yeah. They're really... They're re- I thought, for a quarter, this is wonderful. I thought this was great. Now, I know that sometimes... We can do things like make noise to call attention to ourselves. And sometimes that might be really good in an emergency. But other times, it isn't so good. Right? Sometimes we need to be calling attention to other things, not just ourselves. And we can make a lot of noise. And we use that word to make a lot of noise because... It's something we can hear. But how else might we call attention to ourselves without making literally noise? Putting up our hand like that. Is that right? That calls attention, right? You can call on me. Anything else we could do? Yeah, that's kind of a noise too, but that's a little squeaky noise. Actually, there's a lot of people that are very afraid of little squeaky noises. Like a mouse. Weak, squeaky noises, yeah. I learned one time ago that I made a little, not really a mouse noise per se, I just reached over the side of the bed and scratched the bed rails a little bit, and Mrs. Boak just came right off the mattress, almost <laughs> straight. Yeah. Yeah, that's a noise too. A lot of ways to make attention to ourselves. What could we do to call attention to God? We could pray, particularly if we're praying where other people are around. That would call attention to something very unique. 
Well, sometimes we would have to speak up, right? Or the way in which we behave and the way we act might call attention that we know what God wants us to be and do. This is all very difficult. And also, for 25 cents you can have a lot of fun. Isn't that true? And for some things we can see God creates a world we can enjoy for free. Let's pray about this. Lord God, we give you thanks that you give us sunsets. And sometimes, even though we're afraid of thunder, it makes noise and lets us know that you are in control of all of nature. We see you in the world around us. Sometimes in the smallest things, and big ones too. And you remind us that you created us to serve you. Help us to think about that from time to time in a way that we might call attention to others so that they will know that you have created them as well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you have a great time in Sunday school today. Thanks for coming up. reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and by the time we get down a little further, we're going to be hearing those words, fight the good fight, we just sang in this text. The Apostle Paul writes to this young pastor, of course there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, man of God... Shun all this, pursue righteousness, 
godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all things and Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandments without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once for all, God came from heaven kneeling down in Jesus Christ. Through God's gift, we were forgiven. We received eternal life. Once for all, God took on suffering, cleansing our unrighteousness. Who can understand this offering? We have all been truly blessed. Once to welcome us to heaven, Jesus died on the cross. God's redemptive word is taken from 1 Peter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit A blessing. For those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated, but in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand with God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
See the sign of our salvation. Feel the water cool and fine. Know the joy of celebration, tasting gifts of bread and wine. Hear the words, you are forgiven. Once for all, Christ made us new. God in Christ, you gave your kingdom. May we all now live for you.
Well, the choir sort of summed up what I hope to say today. Kind of interesting starting off worship with all of those readings from Ecclesiastes. It's an ancient, fascinating document. It usually intrigues as well as disturbs readers. Did you know that Ecclesiastes is really denigrated by a lot of Christians? They've wondered why it's in the Bible at all. That's the conclusion of some scholars. But if you've ever read French existentialists, you're going to find yourself in familiar territory here. The words of the preacher, which is what Ecclesiastes means. It's translated as the preacher, are memorable. And little phrases have popped out into our common language from this book. Let me give you some. Eat, drink, and be merry from Ecclesiastes. A fly in the ointment, Ecclesiastes. There is a time for everything. Cast your bread upon the waters. There is nothing new under the sun. Uh, That phrase, under the sun, occurs 30 times in this book. And it's the key to understanding it, really. It means our view of the world leaving God out of the picture. The book describes life without God. It digs over the ground and stares into the abyss. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. In other words, much of life seems pointless. It's all vain. Life is meaningless. It's absurd. If you understand the absurdity of Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot, you're going to understand this book. We don't really know who wrote it. It wasn't Beckett, it wasn't Camus, or Sartre, or Nietzsche, or Dostoevsky, though this book may have inspired them. This is not a favorite book of clergy. There are portions of it we like to quote. It seems to me that the book does seem to have four primary themes. I kind of read through the book in several translations throughout the week, and these kind of popped out. The themes are human yearning, moral values, our fallen nature, and ultimate accountability. Now, it's not our intent to spend all of our time in Ecclesiastes this morning or to root out these four themes. But if we think about a few verses that this author or preacher of sorts has, he has composed words like this. I undertook great projects. I built houses, planted vineyards. I bought slaves, owned herds. I amassed silver and gold. I acquired singers and a harem as well. I denied myself nothing. And what does pleasure accomplish? It all ended up being a chasing after wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. The eye never has enough seeing, or the ear its fill of hearing. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. 
All human efforts are for the mouth, yet appetite is never satisfied. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and saw all that God has done, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. These are separate verses all the way through Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 8. You see, this writer has a problem with our yearnings, and our yearnings are tied to our morality. You see, our yearnings, what we want, seems to get mixed up with our moral behavior. And this writer observes greed, hypocrisy, oppression, injustice, laziness, cursing, and jealousy. He finds later, as he writes, patience is better than pride. Envy, he says, is a driving force in human achievement. Bribery corrupts our heart. Anger takes up residence in the laps of fools. And there is righteousness as well as wickedness. And no one knows whether love or hate awaits him beyond the grave when one's morality is lacking. Not a very popular message here in Ecclesiastes, is it? We really can't live in this world without being bombarded by moral values and human choices. And we cannot live comfortably in this world in the face of evil. But where do these values come from? Where do they arise? The moment you admit that some behaviors are good and some behaviors are evil, you must either conclude that these are ultimate realities which point beyond ourselves or that they are merely convenient, mutually agreed, house rules invented by humanity itself. So, famous atheist writer and speaker Richard Dawkins has now admitted that moral values, including rape, are arbitrary and are not wrong in any absolute sense. And of course, once you agree that morality is created by our culture and has no absolute basis, you have no grounds left for saying that your values are any better than anyone else's. There is no grounding for them to be better. They are just different. And so many contemporary ethicists, therefore, speak of values evolving as though there was some relentless moral progress that could be documented. Not only is there no objective standard to evaluate this, but some of the most appalling cultures in history have existed within living memory, whether the Nazi Holocaust of the Jews or the brutal regimes of mass killings of Stalin or Mao Zedong or Pol Pot. On what criteria can we distinguish between moral values other than personal preference? I mean, unless moral values lie in the character of God himself, we really cannot meaningfully speak about the objective nature of good or evil. 
So our consciences make it very difficult for us to stop worrying, and because we can't do that, we can't enjoy life, which is where we hope to get to. Be grateful. Work hard. Believe in God. Enjoy life. Maybe this is why Ecclesiastes gives us verses like these. So I commend enjoyment, for there's nothing better for people under the sun than to eat and drink and be merry, to enjoy themselves. Ecclesiastes 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your life. Of course, if you ask most people about any verses in Ecclesiastes, including those of us who are preachers, we'll comment on Ecclesiastes 3, which care. Carrie kind of read wonderfully for us today. Most of us learned these words because Pete Seeger used this passage as the basis of a song he wrote in the 1950s. Turn, 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 to everything there is a season. And the lyrics, except for the title, which is repeated throughout the song in the final two lines, are adapted word for word from the English version of the first eight verses of the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. The song was originally released in 1962 as To Everything There Is a Season, and it was on the Limelighters album Folk Matinee. And then, three months later, it appeared on Seeger's own album, The Bitter and the Sweet. But the song really didn't become a real hit until late 1965, and it was covered by the American folk rock band The Birds. So when I first really heard it, I listened to it by The Birds. It, it kind of worked its way from number 80 on the hit chart in October the 23rd of 1965, and by December the 4th, it was number one. This song holds the distinction as the number one hit with the oldest lyrics. <laughs> but if you read a little further past the verses we usually know from the song, you get to verse 12. I know there's nothing better for them than to be happy, to enjoy themselves to enjoy life as long as they live. So there's the suggestion that we need to enjoy life, which is something that should come rather naturally. However, we tend to make it something very hard to do, something at which we must work. Maybe that's because we tend to meander off into pursuits that are not the kind of thing that God prefers. When we read from 1 Timothy chapter 6, we saw the writer contrasting God's true servants with shameless ministers who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. This is something that is hard for those of us who are preachers to read. This is a very bothersome text. According to the writer, these greedy preachers of the gospel are arrogant, lack understanding, they relish the opportunity to engage in fruitless debate. And despite well-conceived schemes, they try to impress others with their purported knowledge of the faith. 
They create envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, and wrangling. That's what we read. Why? It is because they seek above everything else to increase their own status, financially and otherwise. In short, the adage, by their fruits you will know them, proves to be true. Then, after describing ungodly preachers, Paul uses this character foil in order to present an alternative model for how honorable teachers and ministers of the faith ought to live, and he suggests that living differently will help us enjoy life. Through a series of contrasts in verses 6 through 19, he instructs Timothy and other believers in the art of righteous living, which means you will ultimately be able to enjoy life more. Now, when I think about enjoying life, my mind goes, first of all, to one of the things I do enjoy a lot, and that is food. This probably started for me at an early age. When I grew up in Steubenville, Ohio, we lived across the street from a very conservative Jewish family. They had four sons that I played with. Uh, The sons were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Sylvan. (laughs) I don't know how that happened. Sylvan was closest to me in age, so I usually played with Sylvan more than the others. And when Sylvan and I would walk to school together, we would meet in the middle of the street in McCausland Manor, and Sylvan's mother would shout to him from the doorway, and my mother would shout to me. And Sylvan's mother always said, Mrs. Endich said, Sylvan, don't forget your books. My mother always said to me, Bruce, don't forget your lunch. I think that's how it got started. I have enjoyed food, really, for a long time. What's on your plate is the title of a little brochure containing guidelines now published by the U.S. government. These governmental health guidelines have abandoned the food pyramid and that nutritional model, and they've taken on a new metaphor. You can read about it at myplate.gov. So some senior citizen and youth programs have gone so far now as to actually create plates that are color-coded divided into kind of pie shapes with the right amounts of each of these uh, basic food groups you should have on your plate. So you buy a plate, and it's different colors, and there's a section for fruits, one for grains, one for vegetables, one for protein, and one for dairy. You can eat that, and you're supposed to be eating more healthfully. I have discovered that there is a list of four foods that can kill you. First of them is sugar. Sugary drinks. They account for a big chunk of our problem with weight. A single 350 milliliter soft drink can have 30 grams of sugar in it, which is a lot of empty calories with very little nutritional value. Diet products. You think you can avoid the sugar by drinking diet soda or by eating a salad with a diet dressing and a side dish of cheeseburger. (laughs) 
then you've got to think again. Diet foods trick us into thinking we're eating healthfully when we're really just stimulating our appetites to eat more of whatever we want to consume. I know. I experienced this. Processed foods. There's a reason why you can't stop eating those chips. I have learned I can watch TV and multitask. I can eat while I watch TV. And chips are really great. You could even down a whole package of cookies at a football game. Tastes great. Part of the reason, however, is that they're rich in harmful but tasty ingredients like hydrogenated oil and high fructose corn syrup and trans fats and fried foods in a culture where we fry everything. Did you know that there is a food truck here in Rochester that goes around neighborhoods and and special events and fairs and their primary sale item is fried Twinkies? I thought Twinkies only had a shelf life of maybe 300 years, but these really make it for a long time. I looked at this and I thought, Not everything that looks good or even tastes good is actually good for me. And if this is true with food, it's probably true about a lot of things. We might go so far as to say some things help us enjoy life for only a moment. But other approaches to those same things might help us to enjoy life for a really long time. And what applies to food applies to us morally and physically and spiritually. So what's the alternative? How can we fill up our plates, both the culinary and the spiritual, in ways that make us rich in health and vitality? In writing to his young protege, Timothy, the Apostle Paul outlines a strategy for getting rid of the over-enriched junk in our lives and instead becoming rich in the things that matter. In chapter 6, Paul warns Timothy of those who think that godliness is a means to material gain. In Paul's Jewish world, many believed that serving God would automatically lead to financial wealth. And so they pointed that their good works and expectation of a blessing was why they did them. This is an early version of what I call the health and wealth gospel, and you can watch it a lot on TV. And a lot of churches are hearing a bad message. Paul, however, says that this is the first century equivalent of diet soda and processed chips. It looks and tastes wonderful, but it's a diet full of empty calories. It's not what God intends. Instead, Paul says, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world so that we will take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we should be content. Paul argues for what we might call a diet of enoughness or that feeling of being full enough of the right things so that we don't crave all the wrong ones. Let me give you four harmful foods that will destroy your spiritual life. 
being discontent. As excess sugar is the basis of a lot of those harmful foods we consume, so does discontent permeate a life that is bent on overconsumption. We always seem to want what we cannot have instead of wanting what we already have. Paul argues that contentment is a key to health, that happiness is not having what you want, but wanting what you have. Contentment is recognizing that we are dependent on God's provision. And if our appetites tend to be satiated with the things from God, we can bypass a lot of the junk. And the second item on the food chain here is uh, very similar. Harmful desire. The pursuit of riches alone can cause people to fall into temptation and leave them trapped by many senseless, harmful desires. Junk food can be addicting and junk riches can lead us to fill up our lives with empty promises. Two summers ago, Martha and I were in Stone Harbor And this is a a long, thin island, and the ocean is on the east, and the bay is on the west. And people were moving across the island. It was late in the evening. They were moving from the east to the west. And so Martha and I just saw the crowds moving, and we decided to join them. They were going down near the water on the bay and looking toward the mainland. As we looked, we watched the sun just fall beneath the horizon. And the sky became filled with yellow and red and orange and purple. It was glorious. And a woman who I don't know was on my left side and she elbowed me and she said, you know, you can't buy this. She was right. Discontent, harmful desire, the love of money. The old saying that money is the root of all evil is not what Paul said. It's not money itself that's the problem. Just like fat and sugar themselves are not the real problems in our diets. We actually need them to live just like we need some money. But we need them in moderation and we need them in perspective. When we crave money instead of merely building it into a healthy lifestyle, we're bound to make ourselves fat with it. And Jesus warned us what would happen if we did. An eagerness to be rich. When we're eager to fatten up on riches alone, we become envious of those who have more than we do. And so we live our lives always being envious. And you can't enjoy life that way. We need to change our diet spiritually. Paul tells Timothy to avoid these things like we should avoid the junk food aisle at the grocery store. Instead, we should go for the things that have a high value in spiritual nutrition, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. 
These are things that you can consume and share as much as you want. Because God supplies them. We need to adjust our consumption. We need to set our sights more on God and not on things. More on God and on relationships, not things. We need to be rich in doing good work. A diet only works if there's good food to replace the bad. Paul urges people not to be known by the size of their bank accounts. Instead, they should be rich in the amount of good they do for others. Be generous and ready to share. When we share with others, we store up treasure of good foundation for the future. Jesus called it treasure in heaven. That's the words he used. A full plate can either be a good thing or a bad thing. It just depends on what fills it up, right? An old adage says, you are what you eat. And I think it applies to us spiritually as well as food. Are you fast, cheap, and easy? Or are you taking the time to care to do what is right? After years of research, psychologists have now discovered at least nine practices, all of which are under our control. That is, nine practices that lead to enjoyment of life. What I find especially compelling is that each of these nine wonderful traits that have just been discovered are all in the Bible. They are confirmed also by experience. So when it comes to overall life contentment, science and experience and scripture all seem to be somewhat agreed here. So here are the nine attitudes that help people to be content and enjoy life. Contented people use trial as growth opportunity. Contented people cultivate optimism. Contented people focus on the present. Contented people practice forgiveness. Contented people practice generosity. Contented people nurture relationships. Contented people express gratitude. Contented people care for their bodies. And contented people love generously. In our bulletins today, there is a prayer we can use as we prepare for our offering. Holy One, your grace has reached out to us, forgiving, cleansing, renewing in body, soul, and spirit. In deep gratitude, we make an offering of ourselves and our resources of time, abilities, energy, and money. These we make available to be used according to your will for neighbors close by, strangers in our midst, 
the poor and the outcast in society. Receive and bless this expression of thanksgiving and caring, we pray. Amen. Please be seated, friends. Dr. Mary Carlson, what a blessing it is to have your wonderful talents readily available to us when James has to go away for professional conferences. Thank you very, very much. And what a joy it is to have the flowers that are gracing our chancel this morning. They are a gift in remembrance of Garrett McGee by the Sartain family, and we give thanks and praise for the beauty that that adds. Max Mooney, I see that you're here. It's a joy to see you down from New York City and your studies with filmmaking. We understand that you are going to head to Columbia, South Carolina with our mission trips this week and make a documentary of that experience. God bless you. May your lens be true. We also give thanks and praise for birthdays. Kathy Mozart's got a birthday this week. So we give thanks and praise for your birthday, Kathy. And, shh, little secret, Mary Roots is going to turn 99 on November 9th. 
So we give thanks and praise for that. I have a ton of cards up here with pre-printed mailing labels. I know that many of you may not know this glorious woman who lives at the corner of South Main Street in Jefferson. You pass her house all the time. It was green and then became blue beautifully this summer when it was repainted. But Mary's going to be 99, and we'd love to get her 99 birthday cards. If you want to help out, please see me after worship. I have pre-printed labels and everything for you. We also give thanks and praise for the many ways that God works through us. The Pollocks were going to celebrate their 38th wedding anniversary on Friday because they also had intentionally chosen to get married on Bev's mother's birthday that same day. Well, Bev's mother on Thursday night had a massive stroke. So Bev's mother spent Friday in the emergency room. The Pollocks spent Friday in the emergency room. You would think that, there's, that I'm, I'm heading up to a, a bad ending of the story. The good news is Bev's mother by Sunday was sitting up talking, eating, and laughing and is now in a step-down unit at, the, uh, at Strong Memorial Hospital. So we give thanks and praise for God working through physicians and healing us even when we don't anticipate it. And to that end, we're praying in confidence because Karen Ash will have surgery on Monday for breast cancer. And we're quite confident that God will work through those surgeons and work with her and her family to bring her through this. We're also quite confident that God works miracles. And so for the Genekaikis family, who is praying for Lou's mother, Becky, she went into the hospital in Chicago thinking she was just not feeling well, and they discovered brain cancer that had metastasized. Lou is out there now, so we are praying with the entire Genekaikis family for Lou's mother, Becky. We're also praying for, praying with, um, praying with Nancy Lauterbach and Jason Wieland and Olivia Marsh, and we're praying for the McDonald twins who were conjoined at the head and recently separated. May they know God's grace and healing as well. Last week, the memorials. Uh, last week, we also welcomed in, God welcomed into the kingdom Ron Fully and June Kern. Ron's memorial service was held yesterday, as was June Kern's, whose was here in our sanctuary. Both of them are former members. We're thankful for God's intervention and love that transcends all of our needs, cares for us in all of our situations, and watches over us in transitions. So Walt Scott and your entire family gathered here today, we are in prayer with you for Ellie as she goes through this transition of trust confident that God will receive her into the kingdom and that God will accompany you through this time. Friends, please pray with me. Superabundant God, you have gifted us in creation with more than we could have ever expected. Your beauty shines forth around the earth. The skies proclaim the work of your hands and your people are so grateful for your many blessings. Chief among these blessings is your son's sacrificial spirit, his teaching heart, and his life-altering call to follow you. Christ's life, death, and resurrection are a witness to your exceeding everyone's expectations. And we come to you offering these prayers in confidence, not knowing what the future holds, but knowing that you hold the future. And in that we place our trust, and we look to you as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. There's lots of messages from Ecclesiastes and 1 Timothy about the kind of ministry we should do. But the ministry will not just be done in these walls. It will happen outside of them. So I charge you to do it. Go in peace. May the love of God the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, And the blessing of the Holy Spirit go with us and abide with us all today and in the life everlasting. Amen.